Hello and welcome to No Character Limit. My name is Robert Thurk, and today you are going to hear part 11 in my series of my book, God in the Frontier. This is the third part of my final chapter of the book, where I discuss a lot about religion and reference the Burned Over District throughout and all the stories I've shared in my previous ten parts. But I will say that in this third part, I find it the most valuable of the lessons that we can really take away because this is where I dive into the psychology of faith, how our minds work, and its relationship to religion and belief. And when you look at the burned over district and you have this understanding of the mind that we do today in the 21st century. You can see these things all over it. I already talked a little bit about some of these things in my chapter on Millerism, I believe, where I talked about loss aversion and the sunk cost fallacy, which are real psychological phenomena. I also began talking about some of these things in my last part, in part 10. In case you haven't heard part 10, or it's been a while since you've listened to it, we covered findings such as humans' predisposition to stories that have supernatural elements embedded within them because it helps us remember the stories long-term better. We also have a predisposition to transference in order to help us understand the world that is taking our past experiences and projecting them or transferring them onto other people to help us understand them better based on our limited knowledge. And I also talked a little bit about how epiphanies work and what we do as a result of an epiphany as well as a little bit about serendipity as well, which are two very common things discussed within religion. This time, I'm going to go even deeper into all of the psychology around this, and it's just so fascinating, and there's even so much more about this topic that I haven't even touched. But I think it is a good starting point for whenever you want to have a conversation about religion based on things that we didn't know far in the past. And now that we do know a lot of these things regarding the mind and how other religious endeavors have resulted, that these are all things that we need to take into consideration regardless of what we believe today. And so before we get into part 11, I just would like to remind you to like, rate, or review this podcast if you're enjoying it to help get the word out. If you donate to No Character Limit, you will get a free PDF copy of this writing. So with that, please enjoy the penultimate episode of God in the Frontier.
Chapter 9, Part 5, New Religious Movements, Innovation in Faith. Each of the leaders in the burned-over district took action on their epiphanies and a religious movement grew from each. But this is not exclusive to the burned-over district or the 19th century. Every religion must have a beginning, and when a new religion is born, people often regard it with suspicion and scorn. The Mormons of the 19th century were pushed out of New York, Ohio, Missouri, and Illinois. A century later, the Rajneeshis came to Oregon and were first scorned locally, then statewide, and then ultimately at the national level. Today, new religious movements such as Scientology or the People's Temple are disparagingly referred to as cults, implying an inherent falseness to them a wacky and wayward group of followers who aren't to be taken seriously. Their leaders are often marred with allegations of abuse and manipulation towards even their youngest members. But these allegations, even when there is strong evidence to support them, are rarely enough to bring down one of these new religious movements once they've been established. It wasn't the allegations of sexual relations with pubescent children that brought down the Oneida community, but instead it was the loss of the charismatic leadership of John Humphrey Noyes. And despite Joseph Smith practicing similar ideas of communal living and having multiple underage wives, Mormonism has since thrived despite the untimely death of its own initial charismatic leader. Likewise, modern-day new religious movements don't frequently lose followers either, and they can even gain members during scandals due to the wide publicity. Child sex and abuse scandals have rocked new religious movements like the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Children of God or Family International, the United Nation of Islam, and 12 tribes, while each continues to maintain and grow their membership. Before this is dismissed as the behavior of a minority of people, the same could be said for the Catholic Church, the largest and most established religious organization in the world that has now endured countless sexual abuse scandals. So what role does popularity truly play as an indicator of divine will? Did Mormonism succeed where the Oneida community and the Society of Universal Friends failed because it was the will of an all-powerful being? And if this was the case, what does this say of God's intentions with Mormonism's 16 million followers versus the Roman Catholic Church's following of over a billion people? Or, for that matter, Islam's 1.8 billion adherents versus Christianity's 2.4 billion? How false is false? 
When does something go from a gray area to eternal damnation? And who unknowingly crossed that line because they chose to believe one prophet's incredible story over another's equally incredible story? Are we that quick to cast billions of people as unworthy in some meaningful existential sense because they did or didn't believe that a man could translate gold plates from a hat, had parted the seas, or rose from the dead? And if popularity is not the best indicator on what beliefs are worth following, then what other indicators matter? Sociologist David G. Bromley, who has extensively studied new religious movements, has documented the development and emergence of new religions. Bromley has found that new religions sprout up frequently and regularly throughout history and that the human epiphany is foundational to the process. Bromley refers to the epiphany and all the initial actions taken by the leader and their original followers as the initial discovery moment. In Elise Ballard's case, her initial discovery moment would have included her epiphany and the actions she took to leave her husband and live independently. However, Ballard did not use her epiphany to start a religion, so the connection between the epiphany and the initial discovery moment in religion ends there. For new religious movements, the initial discovery moment is only the beginning. In the case of the LDS Church, Joseph Smith's epiphany, often called a theophany because God and Jesus came in human form, occurred in the woods where he spoke directly to God. The following events of having communicated with the angel Moroni, as well as finding and translating the gold plates, would all be part of this initial discovery moment as well. For John Humphrey Noyes, it would be from the time of his epiphany after the Finney revival he attended to the time where he embraced perfectionism in Yale and traveled to find followers. For William Miller, it was from the moment he felt that he had calculated the time of Christ's return to the serendipity he felt when he was asked to speak in his church. Bromley acknowledges that new religions will appear almost anywhere, but specifically cites that social and cultural dislocation and unsettled times as accelerants for a new belief to grow. Being that the burned-over district was nestled in the frontier of a post-revolutionary nation removed of its native inhabitants, and the settlers moving in are an ocean away from the culture of their origin, this could be the ideal definition of social and cultural dislocation and unsettled times. So, when Whitney Cross noticed the unusual religious activity of the burned-over district, while simultaneously Linda Pritchard finds the region to share uniformity with the rest of the country, both can be true. 
This was a time that the United States was creating an identity that made sense to itself. From small things like changing the spelling of words, like theater with an R-E at the end to having an E-R at the end, to big things like embracing a democratic republic over a parliamentary monarchy. It would actually be unusual if the young nation didn't begin to develop its own religious identity. After the initial discovery moment, new religions go through what's called the public sphere entry. This is where the religious leader organizes, grows, and reaches out for followers. They rally people to their cause with the understanding that they share a divine message. For Smith, it was the promise of living exactly as Jesus intended, without the corruption of the more traditional forms of Christianity. For Noise, it was the promise of living in Christian perfectionism here on earth, an impossible notion according to all other major Christian denominations. And for Miller, it was the message that he had decrypted the Second Advent, the year of Christ's return to earth, the holy grail of Christian existence. From this moment, new religions then expand and consolidate into a more mature form. An organized structure begins to take place and an institutionalization begins to occur. But not all new religious movements are guaranteed to survive to this state. For example, the Oneida community essentially died out as a religion with the death of John Humphrey Noyes, never truly reaching the expansion phase as a religion, only as a company. The organizational structure intact, but the spiritual message was sent adrift. By contrast, Mormonism only grew in strength after the death of Joseph Smith and likely entered the expansion phase under the leadership of Brigham Young when they reached Utah. Mormonism fractured as well, expanding not only in numbers but in denominations. Outside of the LDS Church, which holds 98% of the world's Mormons, there are at least 11 other denominations of Mormonism. Millerism experienced its own fracture and consolidation with the creation of Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah's Witnesses, and several other Adventist groups. Bromley notes that the development of new religions, the initial discovery moment, the public sphere entry, and the expansion and consolidation phases, they largely mirror that of any type of startup organization. For a business, the initial discovery moment might come in the form of a solution to a long-standing burdensome problem such as how to create frictionless, high-powered electricity, or how to more efficiently get a ride in the age of smartphones. For Nikola Tesla, the concept of the AC generator, which today powers the planet, came to him in a vision as he was admiring a sunset, a genuine epiphany, where he even saw what it looked like with his mind's eye. 
for Travis Kalanick, his epiphany for Uber came out of the more practical frustration of waiting for a cab one winter night. Both took action to see their products come to fruition. Tesla, penniless, fought for his idea to succeed at the cost of his own fortune to create the generators at Niagara Falls, while Kalanick was already a millionaire and was able to follow through on his vision with comparative ease. Both have been hailed as technical innovators. Tesla's invention was so successful that it has since been managed by a series of public-private business relationships, while Uber's success had jump-started a new private industry in transportation in the smartphone age. Even non-profit organizations can grow through these same steps as new religious movements or businesses. A person can be inspired by a cause, fill the need, and grow the support. But Bromley cautions to not overdraw comparisons of other startup organizations with new religious movements. While a business or a nonprofit might be filling earthly needs, religions, all religions, are fulfilling what is often called spiritual needs. Unlike with business, we do not break down spiritual needs into its different parts and find pieces of it through different organizations. There is little moral quandary about using domino sugar, gold metal flour, and some eggs from a local farm to bake a cake in a Samsung oven made with Oneida utensils. But many would not stand for praying as a Muslim celebrating only Jewish holidays, and proclaiming that Christ is their Lord and Savior. The religious package is meant to be delivered wholesale, not piecemeal. To worship in such an absurd way means a person is equally validating all three religions, but is simultaneously devaluing the premium of the religious exceptionalism each claims over the other. Such a disjointed practice would equate one religion to the same status as all of the rest, which would essentially nullify the moral high ground of each. A religion, no matter how new, is delivering a super-narrative that intrinsically gives permission to disregard all other narratives that don't align with it. For millennia, Christians have looked at outside cultures as ignorant, pagan-worshipping, severely misguided, evil, or some combination thereof because their narratives didn't match the Christian narrative. At times, Christianity was willing to adapt its narrative if it meant bringing in more followers, and this is how famously the Christmas tree and mistletoes came to be associated with the brand. But by the time Mormons finally appear in the picture a couple of thousand years later, their narrative stretches the limits of what Christianity even means at all. But this is not exclusive to Christianity. 
the lack of a consistent divine message between denominations and branches of any religion convolutes their purpose. The scientific evidence continues to grow on how the telling of stories engages the human mind, improves collaboration in groups, and is a natural way to help us pass on information and culture. The relationship between narratives and what they do to the human brain is a potent cocktail for success. But there are drawbacks to narratives as well. Narratives that get retold can often get distorted even when the same person is telling the story. When we tell a story for the second time, Experiments have found that we're often remembering the story from the first time we told it rather than the actual events themselves. And the 100th time we tell a story, we're remembering the 99th time we told it, not the first time or the original event. As these stories, important stories of origin, insight, belief, and direction, get passed down from generation to generation. Even when they are written down, they also get distorted through the amorphous facade of culture and context, like a multi-generational game of telephone. Eventually, a super-narrative gets formed. One Catholic blogger described a super-narrative as such, quote, a supernarrative, then, is when the narrative has become so firmly entrenched that it isn't just believed without evidence. It is believed even when evidence shows it is wrong. When we know the evidence, see the evidence, and yet, despite it all, there is no way in God's green earth we will accept anything other than the narrative we have come to accept. End quote. This seems reasonable enough when looking out toward other supernarratives that we don't subscribe to, but when this same concept is reflected back upon our own supernarrative, we fail to recognize this quixotic human trait. Whatever supernarrative is followed, it quickly provides the individual with the framework for their in-group and outgroup. There are people who do it our way, and there are people who do it the wrong way. Dunbar's number, roughly between 100 and 250 people, is the famed threshold that we are mentally capable of humanizing, a psychological wall difficult for people to empathize beyond because there are just too many people in the world. Religion provided a cognitive loophole by creating a common narrative that strangers can share with an understanding of what is right and what is wrong. So now, instead of 250 people being the upper limit that a person can care about, there are now countless people that they can feel this connection with provided that they are all following the right super-narrative. The in-group may be full of strangers, many of whom might do immoral things. But 
it is all part of a bigger plan of a being beyond our psychological capacity. When God or Christ is invoked from Western government leaders, it is a blatant call to other Christians, the largest in-group in the world, that even though they might not know them personally, that they still share the same core values. It is an attempt to unite the super-narrative and strengthen its preferred cultural position. Because, after all, American holidays don't conveniently parallel with Muslim or Jewish tradition in the same way they do with Christian traditions. Even Plato's original allegory of the cave informs how people feel about those who experience things that are outside of their culture. When the escaped prisoner returns, they no longer see the world as those who are still chained to the cave do, and what once united them has changed in an instant. The one who escaped and saw the world as it truly was is regarded with suspicion, confusion, and doubt. There is a warning embedded into Plato's allegory of the cave that can provide insight into what can happen for those who stray too far from their culture of origin and away from the super-narrative. Trying to understand a different culture than one's own, a culture with values that can often feel foreign, expends a lot of time and energy that could be used for more direct and practical purposes within one's own culture, especially when they are surrounded by like-minded individuals. There is risk in submerging oneself into another culture. The new culture might not be accepting. They might be violent. They might ostracize or place blame for not believing in the right things or provide seemingly unfair punishments. A mistaken etiquette can instantly wipe away years of trust, or a person might find acceptance, but only at arm's length, friend-zoned by the other culture and never truly brought in, a feeling all too well known by immigrants to a new place. Recognizing another culture's beliefs as valid, what is right or wrong, whether there is fate or free will, how to treat our friends, neighbors, and strangers, proper formalities and customs, can bring condescension from non-believers. And after being submerged in a new culture for an extended period of time, it's always possible that their original culture never fully accepts them back in. If both cultures reject them, then the existential crisis of not belonging anywhere begins to set in. A story of caution and propaganda for all those who dare explore outside of their super-narrative. Stray too far away from home, and suddenly you can't go back and no one else will let you in. This is seen over and over in all religions. Catholics, Mormons, and Jehovah's Witnesses alike are all Christian denominations that can excommunicate followers from their faith in the name of God 
and shun their family into ending relationships with them for their actions. Others don't go as far as to completely disassociate from the individual, but may keep themselves and their families at a distance socially. Invitations for certain events might not come. Children of one belief are discouraged from playing with children of another belief. More subtle ways that aren't always spoken openly about. But there are exceptions to these walls of intercultural exchange, particularly when members of the in-group feel they can co-opt an out-group individual fully into their belief system. In that case, extra-friendly invitations, conversations, and support will suddenly be there with the expectation that this person will establish themselves in the socially appropriate role within their new culture. Consider the difference in the emotional response and attitude of an evangelical when someone challenges their belief versus when someone asks to be taught about Jesus. Bringing in more people into the super-narrative can only be beneficial for the cause, and so extra resources are put into converting individuals from other cultures, provided that at the end of the day, they leave their old beliefs behind for good, and accept whatever position it is in their new beliefs that they are expected to be in. It is rare to never that a religious organization allows, accepts, or promotes an individual with multiple contradictory religious narratives that accepts multiple religious stances. The supremacy of the super-narrative must come first. And this brings the question, why does it have to be this way? And in the next section, that's exactly what we're going to look at. Chapter 9, Part 6, The Resiliency of Faith. So what is it about a super-narrative that will, even in the 21st century, make people cling to it even when facts have clearly proven otherwise? Shouldn't there be something that we can learn from all religions? Are there not valuable lessons born from all religions, whether they're intentionally taught or not? The stories of prophets, epiphanies, communities, and higher power across all cultures help us understand the human experience from both their successes in spiritual efforts as well as their failures. Take, for example, the lesson learned of what happens to unchecked hubris on the day of William Miller's great disappointment. But the same events can provide a lesson on how important it is to live every day as rightly and as justly as if we knew the world could end tomorrow. Different religions will also try to provide direction on racial differences as well. While the Nation of Islam claims that the white race is inferior to the black race, 
Mormons have proclaimed darker skin was a punishment by God for not following Christ. And Mormonism is not the only form of Christianity that has embraced a white supremacist point of view. Yet, it's well known today that race is only a social construct with no true genetic definition. The language of God does not distinguish between the socially conceived races. The diversity within one's race has been scientifically proven to be far greater than the diversity between them. Being a visual species, we compulsively react when other people look strikingly different from ourselves, skin color being the most common example. Even armed with the unequivocal facts written into our DNA, people still strive towards a false construct of race that is often promoted by religions, because accepting the truth means allowing more people into your in-group that were once firmly part of your out-group. This jeopardizes the super-narrative of a special peoples who are supposed to be above everyone else, and loss aversion and the sunk cost fallacy can creep in to try and protect that super-narrative. The history of Judaism is an excellent example of both the resilience of a belief and the persecution of the other whether they are the victim or the perpetrator. But ultimately, these examples seem to teach us more about human behavior than anything divine. And the lessons are many. All religions come back to these epiphanies that were had by prophets and religious leaders. Followers accept the narrative as impenetrable and thus the super-narrative is protected from facts, reason, or evidence. A falsehood here or a white lie there is worth whatever casualties so long as the alleged true message of God that sprung from the epiphany was protected. Just a dash of the irrational and a pinch of the illogical is the perfect recipe to wash existential paralysis away. And when enough people see it the same way, too, then the in-group, out-group line has been drawn. But Elise Ballard says that even atheists and non-religious people have epiphanies with just as much regularity as religious people. She goes as far as to know that there is no limitation on who can experience these things, but also recognizes that epiphanies cannot be induced either. And while it is well known that our minds do process rational and logical thought, there are also many irrational and illogical thought processes that drive our decision-making. Being able to define how these psychological processes benefit us can be difficult when they work in ways that literally defy language. Let me give you an example using the two hemispheres of the brain. It has been well established that 
when the connection between the right and left hemisphere of the brain, known as the corpus callosum, is split, the two sides of the brain cannot communicate with each other. This research has demonstrated that the two sides of our brain complete very different tasks. Only the right brain can identify loved ones in a group of people, while the left brain does not have this ability at all. Conversely, the left brain is doing 100% of our verbal communication, and the right brain does not have the ability to communicate in words at all. So, if a person with a split corpus callosum sees the word phone with the right side of their brain, the person cannot verbalize what it is they have seen, even though they do comprehend it. It is only when they are given a pen with their left hand that they can figure out the word they saw. But the right brain does not tell the left hand to draw the word phone, but instead it draws a picture of a phone. Only then can the person with the split corpus callosum recognize the object with their left brain and verbalize what it is they just saw. This same experiment has been repeated countless times in a variety of forms with people who have had their corpus callosum cut. Perhaps even more interesting is that if a set of objects are placed near the left hand, say a red ball, a toy car, and a box of matches, and the word car is flashed to just the right side of the brain, the left hand will pick up the toy car. But when asked why a person picked up the toy car, the left side of the brain, the side that speaks but did not see the word car, will not be able to communicate or explain the reason why he picked up the car. Even more, the left brain will make up a reason why, saying something like, I love taking drives, or I always played with these as a kid. The left brain has no idea that the right brain saw the word and will make up a reason as to why it picked up a car. This is known in psychology as confabulation, an unconscious false memory or memory error, not intended to deceive and used to explain why things happened the way that they did. And confabulation is not a psychological phenomenon limited to those without a corpus callosum. It is a common attribute to human nature. So, in what other ways might the brain function that makes it difficult for us to express in words? And what might there be found about the brain to explain the power of epiphanies that fill us with such certainty? Then, there is the question of what relationship do all of these psychological processes have with new religious movements? New religious movement is the scholarly term for these young spiritual ventures that have not found mainstream acceptance yet and are more commonly, as well as pejoratively, referred to as a cult. 
everybody has varying beliefs on which groups are actually members of a cult or a new religious movement. Some people will broadly put denominations such as Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons into this category, while on the other end of the spectrum, they're more narrowly defined by extreme groups that have committed mass suicide, like the People's Temple or Heaven's Gate. Opinions, emotion, and more illogical and irrational thinking tend to make the definition of a cult fluid. So, is religion just an old cult? Is a cult really no different than a new religious movement? Some will argue that there is a distinct difference between religion and cults. Cults will focus on brainwashing or other mind control aspects that religions allegedly do not use. Another group argues the comparison between cults and religion is fitting, effectively stripping the necessity of the word cult from the lexicon altogether and distancing new religious movements from the compulsive distrust and falseness associated with cults. The statement implies that all religion was once new and was once looked down upon by a mainstream culture during their origin humanizing all religious movements. Consider how Olympian-worshipping Romans might have defined the first generation of monotheistic Christians. Was it not considered equivalent to a cult in the pejorative sense that it's often associated with today? A new religious movement implies nothing more than a religion that has comparatively recently come into existence. The validity of Mormonism or the Jim Jones People's Temple is not the priority of academics studying new religious movements. And this is the way it should be, so that they can be discussed without bias when comparing differing new religious movements. Bias in religion is very likely because it helps shape our worldview. When our worldview is intertwined with our own religious beliefs, those outside of it are prone to receive intentional and unintentional prejudices and discrimination. And so for this reason, even the most scientific-minded people have continually been influenced by their own religious constructs. This could explain why when John A. Saliba, a priest and a professor of religious studies, reviewed the psychological literature on new religious movements, there was very little consistency between them. Saliba states that many studies had significant biases, mostly negative, and made unscientific projections with their results. Language in the Academic Psychological Rulebook, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders, or the DSM, was also less culturally sensitive in the past, so guidelines discerning mental health diagnoses suffered. Even in its current version, there are calls for its need for improvement to be more culturally sensitive and aware. To boot, 
20th century psychologists often felt that new religious movements worked by brainwashing their members, an unscientific term with little real-world meaning or understanding. Conspiracy theories go as far as to state that governments and media use these same secretive brainwashing skills on the mass public as cult leaders do on their members. These conspiracy theories are able to persist because the psychological studies on new religious movements have been so poorly executed that there is little scientific grounds to say anything definitively on the topic at all. Comprehensive reviews of new religious movements by Saliba and others can conclude almost nothing due to all of the contradictory results of these studies. But one consistent result in Saliba's review is that nearly all studies took on a negative view of new religious movements. And this bias is understandable, especially in a day and age where in-depth programs such as A&E's Cults and Extreme Beliefs or Netflix's Wild Wild Country showcase where new religious movements have done terrible things. Racial and gender superiority, child labor, human trafficking, sexual predation, and active violence are often accepted and protected under the premise of being a religion. But Saliba recognizes there is more complexity to these organizations than the provocative issues that most are quick to zero in on, like mass suicide or polygamy. Saliba takes a very lonely stance on new religious movements, despite being a leading scholar on the topic. He thinks that trying to shun or despise a new religious movement out of existence does not work. Every group of Jews to Mormons to the Westboro Baptist Church have all been emboldened or brought closer together by judgment from outsiders. Saliba, while a priest, is also a scholar and has had to defend his neutral stance on new religious movements against those who feel he is not critical enough. As a professor of religious studies, Saliba is right to hold a neutral stance on new religious movements, but he goes even further, stating that many take away a positive experience from a new religious movement, despite all of the apparent controversy. How could it be that a new religious movement can be both complicit in so many atrocities and yet help members grow and live happy, fulfilling, and generally good lives? One obvious answer is that new religious movements offer the same sort of emotional and existential support that old religions do. Religion, faith, and belief must not merely supply one form of support to an individual, but rather a trove of supports in order to have been so resilient across time and cultures around the world. Certainly, 
they offer a community that accepts and shares love with one another. And while some prefer the formal, ritualistic community of something akin to the Catholic Church, others might prefer a young, new organization with idealistic visions and dreams where families share a close, informal relationship with each other. Guidance, direction, and support are supplied wholesale through all religions, new or old. And it's done through that specific movement's super-narrative, that bedrock of unshakable faith in the epiphany of the Founder. Chapter 9, Part 7, The Psychology of Faith While the psychological reviews don't offer much in the way of telling us about new religious movements, these movements are still subject to well-known and understood constructs of the brain. Locus of control is one cognitive construct that perceives the world around a person as either due to the individual or an internal locus of control, or due to some outside source, like somebody else or even God, which would be an external locus of control. By default, ultimately, a belief in God leans more towards people believing in an external locus of control. How much external control is argued about amongst those around the religious prism, as is demonstrated with the difference in ideas between Calvinist predestination, which has a strong external locus of control, or self-determined evangelicalism, which has a weaker external locus of control. Having a belief that outcomes are in an individual's hands, or a strong internal locus of control, is often associated with resilience. A strong internal locus of control allows for an individual to run into many obstacles and overcome them by looking to themselves as the reason for their achievement, knowing persistence and not giving up, which defines grit, was the key to their success. If a person with a strong internal locus of control does not achieve something, they still look primarily to themselves as the cause and decide what it is about their choices or actions that could change to become more successful. But there are times that having a strong external locus of control can help as well, such as coping during a long decline in the health of a loved one or in a crisis situation where one has little control over what is happening around them. Looking to God for answers, seeking help from the outside, and feeling that there is a plan while stressful events play out provide a projected sense of support when, objectively, there might be none. 
as chaos and loss eddies in torrents around those with a religious external locus of control, it can be comforting to believe there is truly a greater power that can't fully be comprehended out there. By contrast, someone who has a strong internal locus of control might sense the hopelessness of a situation and feel there is no way that they have enough willpower to overcome such odds without any help. Ultimately, context determines which locus of control can be the most beneficial. Another cognitive reality is that people see physical objects and events as serving a purpose, particularly children. So rather than something just merely existing, every object exists for some purpose. For example, in a 2015 study, when children were given the statement, Brianna's cat ran away, and were asked to determine the explanation as to why the cat ran away, more children chose the answer to teach her that taking care of animals is a big responsibility. Rather than the answer, she left the door open. And the younger the child was, the more likely they would pick the explanation with the lesson attached, in the eyes of children, the door was not merely left open and an accident happened. There was purpose behind the door being open to teach Brianna a lesson. The interesting aspect about this is that the purpose implies intent. Unthinking objects, by definition, do not teach lessons because they do not act in any sort of independent manner. So what is happening here? The same research has shown that even mountains and stars are often seen by children as the work of serving some sort of purpose with some sort of intent. Intent implies a meaningful direction by some sort of consciousness. But what is this consciousness? Whose intention was it for Brianna to learn her lesson about rearing pets? These are difficult questions, but studies like this one demonstrate that finding a reason behind the intent is actually the easy part. Even children can do it. But it also implies that these reasons might not always be correct, similar to how someone with their corpus callosum split will confabulate a reason as to why they chose a particular object. It's likely that a child would confabulate a reason as to who or what wanted to teach Brianna a lesson. So, why do kids tend to imbue meaning and purpose onto objects? Children are constantly making connections about the world around them at such speed that even today, scientists are stymied by the veracity of their learning. 
if the natural response of a child is to not make a connection that a reason or a cause was behind something, then they would likely have a more difficult time understanding the relationship between different things. Yes, when doors are left open, cats leave, but this says nothing more about the overall responsibilities about being a pet owner in general. The explanation, she left the door open, is without intent and purpose, and is devoid of connection with the cat in the first place. Things go in and out of doors all the time, but a cat is a pet and is meant to stay with the family. Throughout their youth, children are regaled with real and fantastic stories of pets that have run away and their fate. A cat has a place and the child and their family have a responsibility to and for that cat. And leaving a door open by accident is a true warning that any pet owner must heed. When the cat escapes through the open door, the important thing for a growing child is the appropriate relationship of cats to their owners because it provides meaning and context for them. So, of course, it would be to teach Brianna a lesson. While there is a technical cause and effect with the response she left the door open as to why the cat ran away, it provides no meaningful context for the child. It's evident that there is true value then in imbuing purpose and intent onto the objects and actions in our lives, but it can also be misplaced. It's such a successful tactic that making up a reason when one isn't there is actually preferable to having no reason at all, which can sometimes bring us back to the psychological phenomena of confabulation. Even though the older the children got, the less likely they were to ascribe this intent and purpose into the explanation as for why the cat ran away, adults still practice this behavior quite often. Over a third of Americans believe that natural disasters are punishments sent from God rather than the result of just a natural weather cycle from the region. This isn't just a religious phenomenon either. Non-religious people and atheists have often described the feeling that things are happening for a reason and that there is meaning and purpose behind the things in their life, just as they also report having epiphanies as well. These feelings of purpose and intent found in the lives of people is a human experience, irrespective of their faith. So, a feeling of purposelessness does not befall those who are unfaithful or those who ascribe to the wrong religion. We are hardwired to find meaning and purpose in everything, even if it requires just a little bit of confabulation from us. But why are we like this? How do we know it's confabulation and it's not really just divine will? 
What if that silent right brain is actually a direct communication link with God, speaking in a language beyond scientific human comprehension? This may be just a moral compass of sorts that speaks to only those who listen purely and with faith in their heart. Maybe these psychological processes endorse the intent of divine will rather than merely reflect the human brain. The only problem with this line of thinking is that there has never been evidence for it. An obvious, but also in a way surprising fact, is that religion has never actually been based on evidence. So, when evidence is given about how the brain functions, we use the part of our brain that ascribes potential meaning and purpose to things to see if it has connections to anything else. Just like the open door and the cat, our brains presume that there is something more to the information that can provide further insight into other things. But meaning and purpose do not always need to be derived from divine will, and a more discerning mind will likely attribute purpose in a more specific way. This compulsive human trait to ascribe meaning to objects and events actually boils right down to one of humanity's defining features our ability to detect and recognize patterns. Not only is the human brain capable of recognizing patterns better than any other animal on Earth, we often can still outperform artificial intelligence and machine learning to some extent, or at least for the time being. The human brain's ability to recognize patterns has allowed us to make the connections to build the society and world that we have made. No other species knows how to manipulate the environment better than humans, and it's entirely due to our ability to recognize patterns in the world around us. But what good is pattern recognition unless we are applying it to something? Merely recognizing patterns without applying them to novel situations is not an evolutionarily beneficial model. And the evidence sowed into the rocks and soil of the earth tell us that every new species fulfills some extraordinary evolutionary niche. Our ability to stand on two legs, run long distances, to grasp with opposable thumbs, and finally, our ability to recognize patterns allowed us access to another plane of existence that no other species on this planet could truly reach. We could see the patterns in life and the universe and make predictions based on them. The only other species who came close to finding this niche were other hominids, like ourselves, but have since died off, with evidence suggesting Homo sapiens may have played a role in their downfall. Were our ancestors responsible for the genocide of one or more hominid species? 
cousins that were related to us as closely as the polar bear is to the grizzly bear? Did we recognize their patterns as they recognized ours? Homo neanderthalensis and possibly Homo erectus might have shared the same genus with Homo sapiens, but each was their own species, like the lion and the tiger. Enough of a difference that each species' patterns of behavior would have been unmistakable to another pattern recognizer. Could humans have seen these competing hominids as greater threats than wolves, bears, or lions because of their own abilities to recognize patterns too? Other hominid species knew how to tend to fire, build tools, organize, and fight in groups just as well as humans did providing evidence that this unique evolutionary trait was shared among the genus and not exclusively to the human race. This is an exciting fact, dug up from the Earth, written into the language of space and time itself, not a confabulation of purpose, but physical evidence that there were species, plural, that had nearly identical abilities as our own. But this fact can be unsettling for some. It challenges the very foundation of many beliefs that humans are exceptional and chosen by God. But in the end, what may have truly made humanity exceptional is our recognition of what made competing hominids the same. If other hominids were able to recognize patterns in the same way as humans could, they had access to the same plane of thinking and ways of planning that humans did, making them an incredibly dangerous rival. Human patterns could be studied with the same meticulous nature that humans studied the patterns of other living things on Earth as well, including themselves. But this other species would not see humans as exceptional after all. How much more humble might our religious stories be if Neanderthals existed into the modern age alongside humans? Or would we just have committed the same mistakes that we've made on each other based on the social construct of race? Would the Neanderthals' competing intelligence have been enough to check our hubris? Or would it just give us someone else to otherize? In the ancient wilderness of prehistoric Earth, another species that could understand us, track us, and outnumber us would have been chillingly frightening. They could comprehend the same language of pattern recognition that we could. They could hack our code and sow deception and doubt into everything we did. Their ability to deceive our pattern recognition could then have been our biggest threat, and we felt we needed to get rid of and eliminate the problem of the only other wild cards in the animal kingdoms other than ourselves. According to the most recent evidence, Climate change likely played a larger role in the extinction of the Neanderthals than humans did. But the two species coexisted 
for thousands of years before Neanderthals disappeared from the world stage. And what enemy would seem more frightening than one who knew how to think like a human? Whatever role humanity played in the extinction of our hominid cousins tens of thousands of years ago, the only Homo genus left on the planet now is us. When we look into the faces of all other life forms on this planet, we don't see what the lion sees in the tiger or what the polar bear sees in the grizzly bear if they were to ever meet. We are like the hippopotamus, whose closest living ancestors are whales and dolphins. We look at a bonobo, a chimpanzee, or a gorilla, our closest living ancestors, and despite all of the glaringly obvious similarities, it is the differences that are still wide enough for some people not to see any connection at all. As we went through the process of civilization, we retreated from the natural world, deciding that we were ordained as keepers of this earthly menagerie that we were born into and a part of. And then further we retreated into our own world, confabulating an origin story for ourselves, different from all other species on Earth. Even though today we know that every last species on the planet is part of our genetic family, born from the same common ancestor. For many who are religious, acknowledging this exciting, evidence-based miracle that all life on Earth, including humans, evolved from a single cell over three billion years ago, is less meaningful than believing in an origin story where a source of supernatural magic occurs. Yet, if there is a god, his pen would be space and his paper would be time, because his canvas is the universe. It has only and always been humans which have written on paper and tablets, not God. Whether it's a prophet, apostle, or a scribe following the orders of a man reading from inside a hat, the writing always comes through a fallible human who has all of these well-studied psychological processes running in the background with each letter wrought. And while pattern recognition might be the revving engine under the hood that has a tendency to overdraw comparisons, we have another psychological process that helps us navigate the finer details of wanting to be right. This is also our inherent, yet often overlooked, ability to reframe. Reframing is just taking a situation and changing a perspective on it. For example, a person whose car breaks down and misses an important appointment ends up seeing that as a good situation because it may have directly led to how they met their spouse. Someone who misses a crucial flight is quick to find profound meaning when it's discovered that the plane has crashed. 
Richard McDonald, who famously sold McDonald's before it became a multi-billion dollar corporation, was asked if he had any regrets when he was reaching the end of his life and he saw the global impact of his company. McDonald plainly stated that he had no regrets, saying, I would have wound up in some skyscraper somewhere with about four ulcers and eight tax attorneys trying to figure out how to pay all my income tax. McDonald retrospectively reframed his situation. While most people would consider selling the company as one of McDonald's greatest mistakes, he has everything that had since occurred in his life to be thankful for. Children, grandchildren, family events, and all of those special moments that his life had become. Had he never sold, he would have been in a totally different world, the highest levels of upper-class society, with wealth few people could ever truly comprehend. But the person McDonald would have become as a millionaire would have surely embraced his persona of business acumen that would have likely accompanied his rags-to-riches story. We are only reinforced by the experiences from the decisions we've made, and we can never truly know whether things would be better or worse had we made a different choice. Instead of lamenting that he never got to live the millionaire lifestyle, McDonald celebrated it. He's happy to have what he considered to be a genuine life experience that wasn't filled with the trappings of wealth. But a Richard McDonald that got wealthy would have been the only Richard McDonald that he ever knew, and it's likely that it would have felt just as right to him as selling the company did for the real Richard McDonald, thanks to our brain's ability to reframe. The chimerical ability of reframing happens so automatically that it can seem like it never happened at all. And we do this all of the time. When good things or bad things happen, we ascribe intent and purpose to them, and then proclaim that this was also the right thing. It prevents us from perseverating over the inevitable what-ifs and countless directions our lives can go at any given moment. This natural psychological attribute allows us to feel like not only are things where they are meant to be right now, that they had always and inevitably meant to be this way. Even more, we can often feel that secretly, deep down, we knew it all along. Even when we thought we didn't know it, that things were always meant to turn out in the way that they did. This retrospective reframing makes it difficult to trust our own instincts on the rights and wrongs of our choices. This leads to a strong sense of external locus of control and can make the world suddenly feel faded. But it is this very same process of retrospective reframing that glues together a person's identity and imbues them with a sense of meaning and purpose. Think of every missed opportunity or 
alternate decision you ever could have made in your life and how your life could have been different from each one. A good retrospective reframe alleviates the paralysis of that thought immediately. In addition, there's also the Barnum effect that can lead to an even further external locus of control. Along with our tendency to ascribe meaning and purpose to what otherwise might be arbitrary events, we attach personalized meaning to arbitrary statements as well. This is most often what astrologers do in order to provide a horoscope that can suddenly feel so personalized and individualized when you read them. This is often the accusation leveled at psychics and mediums as well, using general statements to deceptively give their client a personal experience. In the same way that many people can read their horoscope and feel it is talking about just them, this is often the same sort of feeling one gets when visiting a medium or a psychic. The Barnum effect is our natural tendency to regularly ascribe these general statements into a personal narrative. So, Put all of these psychological processes together and it creates a classically human outlook known as naive realism. Naive realism is the tendency for a person to believe that their own experiences have informed them to make the wisest choices. The comedian George Carlin once asked the audience if they ever noticed how all drivers going faster than them are maniacs and all drivers going slower than them are morons. It's a feeling every driver is familiar with, that they believe their chosen speed is just right and all other drivers are wrong. But political beliefs, social groups, and even religious beliefs can be determined by this same naive realism. Every person weaves their own filter of which all of our five senses pour through, and it's stitched together with generalizations and falsehoods that make life easier to manage, and it works pretty well for us. This is true for people of all political beliefs, all social groups, and all or no religious beliefs. Naive realism is the great equalizer of the human experience. And yet, like some form of collective amnesia, it's barely ever mentioned or planned for when embarking on finding meaningful solutions to deep and difficult problems. With all of this knowledge of history and all of this knowledge of our own cognitive processes in our brains here in the 21st century, where we have no excuse of not knowing or understanding these things, what is the role of religion moving into the future? It's clear that people are not going to just abandon religion. And yet, there are multiple competing super-narratives 
that are not willing to budge with other competing super narratives. So where does this leave religion moving forward on a globalized planet in the 21st century? In my final section of the final chapter, that's the question I want to explore. Listening to this episode of No Character Limit. Every episode, the sources that I used are located in the description if you would like to check them out. In addition, please consider liking, rating, and reviewing if you enjoyed this podcast, as each one goes to help further the reach of this podcast for new people to hear. Each episode requires hours in research, writing, recording, and editing. So if you feel that what you just heard is worth a donation of any size, please go to the description and follow the links for that. Each donation comes with a free PDF copy of a writing piece of your choice, no matter the size of your donation, and you get a lot of extra features with that, including a lot of the artwork and graphs and pictures, as well as the descriptions that I don't include in the podcast. If you would like updates for new episodes, you can follow No Character Limit at mastodon.world. And finally, if you have a question, comment, or even a correction, please feel free to reach out at nocharacterlimit at protonmail.com. Thank you again for listening.